Bruce Cook is honored to have you join his conversations with people committed to talking with heart and brain functions in full operating gear. No spin, no agenda, just authentic conversation on just about anything. Welcome to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Chris Berg and Paul James Smith, authors of the book Night Police Join Bruce. Both authors' resumes read like crime novels themselves. Berg is a retired undercover narcotics agent with many international cases under his belt. Smith is a retired Marine, Coast Guard reservist, federal agent, and local lawman. In 40 years, Smith did everything from handing out traffic tickets to being involved in special ops like Ruby Ridge and Waco. Bruce talks with Berg and Smith about the type of people that decide to go into a career in law enforcement and what a cop's life is like behind the scenes. Live on AMA 30 KLAA tonight, Bruce Cook wraps up the week with talk that's worth tuning into. Sports, people, politics, life, authentic, real and happening now. Here's your host, Bruce Cook. Brought to you by New Directions for Women. We know recovery. Angels Radio listeners, this is Bruce Cook, and it is live Sunday night on Angels Radio here in Southern California. One of the, I would say, blessings of this COVID-19 crisis is the unintended and unexpected goodwill that has resumed in the public for our first responders. And I'm talking about a a wide variety of, of very important and very essential people that, that make our lives okay, from our doctors and our hospitals, from our nurses and all of our medical technicians, to our firefighters, to our police. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen, radio fans, radio listeners here at Angels Radio, we're talking police. And one of this, the biggest so-called benefits of this change in attitude is the positive feelings that all of us are having towards those that take care of us, those that protect us. And this is a sea change because for the last many years, as we all know, the public relations effort with the police departments of most urban centers, not so much the smaller ones, but certainly in our big cities has been really rough. From Black Lives Matter to gangs, to drugs, to immigration. All of these issues have colored our view, or at least many of our views, of, of what it's like to be in law enforcement. So tonight, we've invited two guys who have a background, pretty extensive background, that uh, considers, not considers, but covers from the military and the Coast Guard to local law enforcement to the national level, working for the U.S. Treasury and Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Divisions. Anyway, these two guys got together to write a book. And the book is called The Night Police, and it is by Chris Berg and Paul James Smith. Both guys are on the phone tonight. One is calling in from Sacramento, the other from the San Francisco Bay Area. We're going to talk to them, and we're going to get the inside story on what has changed is it lasting? Is it real? And what is this book about? And how did two guys write this book? So without further ado, as they say, please say hello to first, let's say hello to Chris Berg. Chris, are you there? I am. Thanks very much for having us. Appreciate and, it. And Paul, are you on the other line? Yes, I am. Good to be with you, Bruce. Okay, so we'll try and keep this straight on radio. We've got Chris and Paul. Let me start with Chris, since I introduced you first. Give us a little bit of your background together. How did this happen? Who are you? Um, okay, well, I'm I'm retired out of law enforcement quite a long time, and uh, I graduated out of high school and uh, I mean out of college, and uh, almost immediately got a job in law enforcement, and uh, it was exactly what I'd hoped for. I'm third generation and. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And uh, after a, a pretty long stint, including time working with my, my co-author, Paul, um, we just started talking about the concept of this book, and it's carried through over the years. And 
nobody's more surprised than he and I to find out here we are at the end of the day with uh, with a book. Paul, how did you and Chris work together? It's very hard for a solo author to write a book, let alone two people uh, coordinating, and you're in two different cities. How did you do this? I must say, let me start by saying, I think this book is extremely well-written. I was surprised how well-written, to be honest with you, given the subject matter. Um, but your your language is quite outstanding. Your sentence structure is very interesting. We'll get into the story in a minute. But how did you guys work together in two locations? Well, I guess it's the, it's the miracle of the computer these days. But uh, when, when we started writing this book, I, I was actually living up in southeast Alaska. Uh, my, my wife and I were running a gun shop up there. And uh, Chris and I, we managed to get together three, four times a year. But most of what we do is, is doing stuff collaboratively on the computer and, and bouncing it back and forth and and an uh, awful lot of phone calls. We probably talk on the phone every day for at least an hour or so. Uh, we're Actually, we're already on to uh, the concept of book two, but um, that, that's it's not ideal, but that's the way we do it, and it's working for us. Well, I, like I said, I was kind of amazed at how well I thought it came together in terms of the language style because personally I know how hard it is to write a decent paragraph just by yourself. But that aside, let's tell the audience a little bit about what you've done. As I understand it, and as I have read part of this book, it is fiction, number one, but it's based on real stories that you guys have experienced or your fellow brothers in blue have experienced. And it's kind of vignettes in a fake town, fake names, but real stories. Am I correct? Chris, what do you say? Yeah, you're you're on the money, and obvious that was that was obviously done uh, with great intent. Uh, we wanted to protect uh, all the people that we worked with, and ourselves, and uh, families, and uh, it just made more sense for us to fictionalize the stories that we know so well. Paul, you said that you and your wife were up in Alaska. Is that correct? Did I hear that right? Yes. One of your vignettes was a story in Alaska, and, and the victim is up there. You want to share that story a little bit? It's a little raw, but go ahead if you care to. Uh, you're going you're gonna to have to refresh my memory just a bit on that one, Bruce. Uh, the, the vignette or the chapter in the book deals with one of your characters who goes into a bar one night and gets accosted by a drug dealer and ends up being accosted by a sexual predator, ends up in the parking lot. After a, a lot of action, the character finally gets the guy arrested. He, go, he goes to, into, the, uh, into the jail. He gets bail. He escapes and goes to Alaska and uh, has a warrant out for his arrest and never comes back, but continues to correspond with the character apologizing for what he's done. Uh -huh. Hey, Paul, if you, uh, well, if you want, I'll take gonna, a run at that. Yeah, I'll, I'll bounce that over to Chris. Okay. That was actually one of his stories. Yeah, there, there absolutely was a connection to Alaska. It just so happened uh, that that's where he fled uh, after he'd been arrested and skipped bail, etc. Um, yeah, I'll do my best to, to keep it uh, right for radio. Um, it's not it going to be easy, but go ahead. <laughs> it was just one of those events. We had a long day. We'd done some search warrants and a pretty successful day for us. And we did what we did in, in most of those evenings after a long day. We all ended up at a, at a local uh, saloon that we used to hang out with. And uh, uh, we were just in there with our buddies. And quite frankly, this was just a narco saloon. It wasn't uh, citizens once in a while would miswander in there, but it, this was an Arco saloon, and we were in there, and I happened to be sitting at the bar, and uh, this guy starts pushing cocaine across the bar, and uh, no matter what, no matter what we tried to do, we couldn't get him to quit it. Uh, we were trying to just enjoy ourselves and and forget about work for a few hours, but he felt the need that he had to. Uh, 
to try to sell a little dope. At least that's what we thought. And at one point in time, he put his hands on the knee of one of the guys at the bar and said, uh, I'll tell you what, if you, uh, if you don't want my cocaine, maybe I can give you uh, another, for lack of a better term, sexual pleasure. And um, that sort of set a lot of, uh, a lot of bells off. And uh, there was a decision made, let's go find out what this guy's got to sell. And uh, we set it up. Uh, we sort of had some signals we could use with each other at the bar. And, uh, I, uh, there was a, a meeting that happened in the, in the bathroom of that bar, and it wasn't pretty. The, the whole point was uh, there, was gonna, there was a need for cover out in the parking lot. And uh, so this guy was uh, met uh, by a couple undercovers out in the parking lot. And uh, before there was even an opportunity to uh, conduct a transaction for some cocaine, the guy threw his arms around one of the undercovers. And uh, it turned out that what he really wanted was a date and the sexual pleasure. And uh, it, it definitely devolved at that point. Uh, he was arrested. Uh, he was carrying quite a bit of cocaine on him at the time. And uh, eventually, uh, when he got to court, um, well, actually, what happened was he skipped court altogether. He was out on bail. Uh, it was a FTA, a failure to appear. And uh, he took off. And about a year, year and a half later, uh, a letter was received at a PD from this guy apologizing, profusely apologizing for his behavior and what he had done, uh, and that he had fled to Alaska, and uh, then he signed his name and left his address. That's the best part of it, Chris. The guy <laughs> sent you the apology letter and left his address. I love Unbelievable. that. I love that. Yeah. yeah anyway, anyway, I appreciate your detailing the story as carefully as you could, but... You gave a flavor of what these chapters are. Each chapter are, is different. It's a different story behind the scenes of what it's like to be a, an officer. I want to I segue from introducing you in the book into talking about some serious issues that are really in the forefront of society today, partly because of COVID, but really it's an ongoing thing. Um, in the introduction to your book, guys, I want to read something that I want to start off our radio talk with. I got to get my glasses on here because being old and blind is not a good thing, especially in law enforcement. But anyway, in your inter introduction, you write Contrary to conventional wisdom, cops are not particularly racist, homophobic, sexist, or whatever the next is is no more so than the community they serve if you are an asshole pardon me i think that's radio okay in today's world <laughs> they don't like you regardless of your color your skin your ethnic background your shoe size whatever if you are easily offended this book is not for you that's clear but anyway let's talk about the statement that cops are not any more racist or blah, blah, blah than the general public. I got to challenge that, and I'll tell you why. How, and you guys would know best, how can you deal with the level of garbage in the world today and not be somewhat skeptical of humanity? Can I start with, let me start with uh, Paul. Paul, how would you like to tackle that question first? Well, I'll tell you, Bruce, you know, most of us came to the job, um, at least at the time and the place when Chris started, Chris and I started, which was, golly, 40-something years ago. But, you know, we, we came to the job out of college, out of the military, and, and, uh, and, and grew up in pretty much, you know, what I would call the, the, the normal, I guess, white-bred America Kind of a childhood, we really didn't come to the job with any any particular uh, prejudices or, or 
bad feelings against one group or another. Um, you definitely, as the, as the years go by, uh, your 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 worldview becomes a little bit more narrow, uh, and, and it's. I think it's what cops then and cops now probably still deal with, and that is your 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 brothers and sisters in the police community understand all that's going on around you. Um, other folks, maybe not so much. But uh, the, the statement in the book, in the in the introduction to the book, is. Um, I think it's pretty accurate. It's, it's like most of the men and women that go into this line of work don't go into it with a with an axe to grind against one group or another. But but if you're a bad guy, and it doesn't it doesn't matter whether you know whether you're a you know a, a, a drug dealer of color or, or you're a, a, a Caucasian pedophile, the cops aren't going to like you. I mean that that's um, I don't know if you've heard the analogy of 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 sheep and sheepdogs, but you know cops are sheepdogs. We're 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 out there to protect the flock. That that's that's why almost every man and woman I've ever met on the job. That's why they were in it. Well, that's a good answer. I'm going to ask ask uh, Chris the same question. I also want to ask you both if you would be willing to share. The worst experience that you have ever had serving the public. we got to take our first break. Ladies and gentlemen, on air tonight, Chris Berg, Paul James Smith, authors of The Night Police. We're talking behind the scenes of police life. I'm Bruce Cook, and we will be right back. Don't go away. Angels Radio. AM 830. Asking for help in life takes bravery. Women addicted to alcohol and drugs know this very well. Most suffer silently while their lives fall apart, their children and their families in crisis. For more than 40 years in Southern California, New Directions for Women has helped addicted women recover in a nationally recognized treatment facility in Costa Mesa. Their doors are wide open. It just takes the first step. Call New Directions for Women. The number is 888-786-0509. Again, 888-786-0509. You can also visit them at www.newdirectionsforwomen.org. New Directions for Women. They know recovery. Winning is a team effort. It's about having the right people with the right skills in the right roles at the right time. In business, just like in sports, success comes down to having a talented team and a strong game plan. And that's where Ultimate Software comes in. Their HR technology puts people first with a comprehensive suite of tools designed to engage, motivate, and empower your workforce. Learn more at ultimatesoftware.com. Ultimate Software, people first. Due to recent world events, Hyundai Assurance is back. If you buy or lease a new Hyundai by April 30th and lose your job this year due to COVID-19, we'll cover your payments for up to six months. And for current owners financing through Hyundai Motor Finance, we have a program to protect you too. To our Hyundai family, we've got your back. The SoCal Hyundai dealers. To learn more, go to HyundaiUSA.com. Hyundai Assurance. Offers require financing through Hyundai Motor Finance. Restrictions and proof of job loss required. See dealer for details. Offer ends April 30th, 2020. If the woman you love, your mother, wife, daughter, sister, partner, or friend is on a downward spiral from substance abuse and doesn't know where to turn, let us help. New Directions for Women, a Costa Mesa-based addiction treatment facility, has the answer. Since 1977, we have helped over 5,000 women change their lives, returning them to sober, healthy living, restoring love, hope, and dignity to them and their families. Don't wait another day. The woman you love needs your help now. Call us at 
1-800-242-0409 or visit us at www.newdirectionsforwomen.org. Again, 888-786-0509. New Directions for Women. We know recovery. To talk to Bruce Cook, pick up the phone and dial 714-2830-830. And I'm back live, ladies and gentlemen. Bruce Cook on Angels Radio, AMA 30 KLAA. If you're just joining me tonight, we're talking to Chris Berg and Paul James Smith, retired law enforcement guys calling in from Northern California, authors of the book The Night Police, and before we went to commercial break, I asked them both to share with me the worst thing that's ever happened to both of them on the force. And I'll tell you why I want that question answered right after they share whatever they're going to share. Let's start with Chris Berg. Well, Bruce, that's a that's a tough question, really. Um, you know, for every guy and gal out there doing the job, uh, I think everybody has a slightly different experience about what's the worst experiences. Uh, I, I was really affected by thing, uh, the child abuse and elder abuse cases that I worked, um, sometimes just dealing with people who were pitifully poor with no perceived way out was just painful, painful. And then there's the, you know, the gore, um, the accidents, we call them gruesomes, uh, that happened. Uh, but if, if I have to have to give you one, it probably, it's actually detailed in the night police. Uh, it was a period of about six weeks, uh, where, uh, I, I and, uh, partners, various partners, uh, went to three cases, um, with infants or toddlers, uh, one was a horrific burning. Another one was a small child who choked to death, and another one was a, a child who smothered. And in the course of six weeks, went to those three cases with those children in my hands or my arms at one point or another. None of those children made it, and. I would say that today, all these years later, I'm still profoundly affected by that. I, I, I think that how could that, you how could you not be? How could you how I mean, that's that is what would be called so far beyond the call. I don't know how you would ever be the same. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. How do you put that aside and go home? Uh, cops compartmentalize. That's what we do. That's why the fraternity of police is as close as it is, because nobody else, quite frankly, if you're outside that fraternity, it's hard to understand what you might or might not see on the street. And within that fraternity, uh, you know, that, that was just the worst for me. Uh, every other guy or gal out on the street is having similar experiences. So I, I think the closest answer I could give you is we compartmentalize it. We put it away somewhere. And, and Paul will tell you, uh, at some point in time, your ability to put that away, that little box you hold those emotions and feelings in, gets full. Yeah, I was, was going to say, the box is going to explode. It, it does happen, and, and there's a lot of different ways that manifests itself. Before I get to Paul... I want to take that a step further. Do you think that the public understands what you just explained about the brotherhood and the idea of compartmentalizing these horrible things that you see? And the other part of the question is, and I want both of you guys to answer this part of the question, as an outsider, as a, as a public, as a citizen watching the news and seeing what's going on, it seems to myself and to so many others that the violence in our society has gone to extremes beyond all imagination. Am I right? Hmm. I, Look I back in your 40-year career when you started. Did horrible things like what you just described happen as often as they seem to be happening now? 
my guess is there's probably some sort of an incremental rise. The one big difference is there wasn't the social media, there wasn't the incessant press pressure, there wasn't uh, really an understanding. There was no way for people to know these things were happening. If it wasn't in the newspaper, you weren't seeing it or hearing about it. So I think it's a combination of, yes, incrementally, things have gotten worse for sure. Uh, but I think social media and the press uh, have taken it to a whole new level. That's just my opinion. Chris, you said you're a third-generation law enforcement guy. Do you have a son or a daughter? Is there going to be a fourth generation, or is there? Uh, I do have a daughter, and uh, she's in grad school, and I do believe she'll most likely become the fourth generation. Yep. Interesting. Let's switch over to your your partner, Paul. Paul, same question. Share a story with us that changed your life uh, on duty. Uh, well, Bruce, uh, you know, much like Chris, when I was a, a policeman, um, I, I, I became a detective uh, about six years on the job. And my, my first detective assignment was working uh, crimes against children, uh, which for the most part involved uh, sexual abuse of children. And, and that was tough. I mean, at the time, I, I had two two daughters that, um, I mean, they were both preschoolers at the time, and that introduced me to, uh, I mean, even though I'd been a cop for six years, that, that introduced me to a world that I was was hard to imagine. Um, but for me, and this is a, something that wasn't detailed in the book, but it was an experience of mine, I, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, I, I was a special agent with ATF, and and uh, I, I, I was uh, a participant at the, uh, at the initial raid in Waco. Um, and th that morning, uh, four of my compadres were, were shot dead. And, and that, was, that was probably for me in a 30-plus year career, that was, that was the one that... Uh, it stays there. So how did you deal with that? Did you compartmentalize or did you seek some help? Did you go home to your wife? I mean, what do you do? I mean, that's a war zone. Uh, it's a war zone. That's like being in Iraq and having your army buddies shot in front of you. I mean, it's it's horrible. But how do you deal with that when it's a job and a paycheck and a career? It's, you know, you made that choice. Yeah, and, and at the time, um, I, 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 I just as Chris said, I, I, I put it in a box and I tucked it away. And what was, what was unusual for me was the, the, the three main groups of ATF agents that were there were from Houston, Dallas, and New Orleans. Myself and a handful of other guys were there as, as, as uh, uh, sniper teams. And uh, I was from California, so when when my part in the thing was over in the first week or so, I got on a plane and I went back to California, and it was it was in the rearview mirror. Um, but uh, yeah, years years down the road, uh, 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 actually a good friend of mine uh, who'd been through <laughs> again uh, many many horrific law enforcement things he he actually led me by the hand to a, a guy that i i refer to as dr feelgood but he was a police psychologist and uh i i spent some time with him sorting some of this stuff out is ptsd a real thing in the police force today i think it is i i, I think it's um as you say it's it's really um it's it's no different than the the guys and gals that are overseas um, in, in active combat. It's I mean if you can imagine, and this is the one thing that Chris and I really really wanted to do in our book, and in our book is rough. We understand that, but we, what we tried to do was create for the reader. Uh, the idea that what would it be like to put on that uniform 
and get in a patrol car and go out and do that job day in and day out. It, it is, it's a, it's a low grade type of combat, but just by virtue of putting that uniform on makes you a target. And on any given day or night, you could end up in a, in a mortal struggle. And yeah, that's, you know, depending on what the, what the individual officer experiences over, over a career. Yeah. I think PTSD is definitely a factor. It sure is. Yeah. Yeah. Would you mind if I just added something to that? That's why you're on the radio. You can add whatever you like. Jump in here. You know what? Uh, If anytime you watch it on television, you see cops get involved in a shooting and they get put on some sort of administrative uh, relief and uh, psychologists come out of the woodwork and uh, that's, that's just sort of standard. And it's not too far off from the truth. However, when you go to these gruesomes, whatever kind they are, and it's not uncommon to go to more than one in a shift, uh, nobody takes you aside. I mean, nobody... You know, nobody takes you aside and says, oh, you need some help. Uh, They do that when it's a picture that will be in the press. And if it's got anything to do with the shooting, again, because it's so press worthy, then they will do those things. They will offer that up. But, you know, most cops run from that because you don't want to be found unfit for duty and not be able to come back. So it's, it's, it's an interesting an odd, point. It's an odd world. Yeah, well, that's a very interesting point. I understand it. I'm not sure I like it, but I understand it. We're going to take our second break, guys, uh, on the half hour. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. But before I go, <clears throat> I want to move on and, and talk about some of the really serious issues that you deal with in terms of handling people that have mental illness, handling people with drug addiction, and more. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook, Angels Radio, AMA 30, KLAA. And you know what? The phone lines are open, anybody listening that wants to talk to my guest tonight, talk about the police, talk about their feelings about the police, 714-2-830-830. You're welcome to join in. We'll be right back. Angels Radio. AME 30. If the woman you love, your mom, wife, daughter, sister, partner, or friend, is on a downward spiral from substance abuse and doesn't know where to turn, New Directions for Women can help. It's a Costa Mesa-based addiction treatment facility that has the answer. Since 1977, New Directions for Women has helped more than 5,000 women change their lives returning them to sobriety, healthy living, restoring love and hope, and providing dignity for them and for their families. Don't waste another day. The woman you love needs your help now. Call New Directions. The number is 888-786-0509. Once again, call 888-786-0509 or visit them at www.com newdirectionsforwomen.org That's New Directions for Women They Know Recovery Mike Capozio here General Manager of Rotolo Chevrolet I'd much rather be laughing and dancing Unfortunately, we're all in this crisis together The health and safety of you and our team members is our top priority We have a full-time staff cleaning and sanitizing every doorknob and steering wheel on the lot We're following CDC, California and County Department of Health guidelines Our concierge service is available for pickup and delivery of your vehicle. Go to Rotolo.com or call to schedule your appointment. Stay safe and healthy, and remember, the fun is coming back. Chapman University salutes its alumni in SoCal and beyond who are working on the front lines in the battle against the coronavirus pandemic. To the graduates of our Physician Assistant Studies Program and the School of Pharmacy and all healthcare professionals giving of themselves to keep us safe and healthy, we extend our gratitude. Let's do what we can to help them by staying home. It's the best way we can get back to brighter days and more Angels baseball. To learn about Chapman's Health Sciences graduate programs, please visit chapman.edu. Asking for help in life takes bravery. 
Women addicted to alcohol and drugs know this too well. Most suffer silently while their lives fall apart, their children and families in crisis. For more than 40 years in Southern California, New Directions for Women have helped addicted women recover at our nationally recognized addiction treatment center in Costa Mesa. Our door is wide open. Take the first step. Call us at 888-786-0509 or visit us at www.newdirectionsforwomen.org. Again, 888-786-0509. New Directions for Women. We know recovery. Bruce Cook wants to hear from you. Now back to your host, Bruce Cook. And I'm back. It's Bruce Cook live Sunday night on Angels Radio. Our guests tonight, two former cops, Chris Berg and Paul James Smith, were talking about their book, Night Police. And we're more importantly, or I shouldn't say more importantly, because their book is obviously very important to them. But importantly, talking about societal issues that we all are dealing with and facing with, not just in Corona, uh, COVID-19 crisis time, but all the time. Before break, I brought up some tough subjects like uh, dealing with the mentally incapacitated, dealing with the drug addicted, et cetera, that police have to deal with every single day. But before I get into that with my, my esteemed authors tonight, one one other question uh, about the COVID-19 situation. Guys, share with me what you know about your fellow brothers and sisters on the front lines during this time. Are they afraid of getting sick? Some of them have gotten sick. Some of them have passed away. How afraid are they? How safe are they? And What's your feeling about this? If you were guys, I assume you're retired, but if you were still on the force, would you be out there on the front lines also? Let me start with Chris. Well, the answer is, of course, you'd be out on the front line because that's what's your job. And like you said, uh, it's something we ask for. So, yes, of course, you'd be out there. Um, are they afraid? Well, they're, they're not immune to that. They're like everybody else. You have anxiety over some of the things that you have to do on the job. I think, and Paul mentioned it early on, most people get into this line of work, whether people want to believe it or not, because they want to do good and they want to do good for others. And uh, it, it may sound like a line, but it's not. And so you put that risk aside, like you might put aside the risk of getting shot or stabbed or beaten or whatever it is you put it aside what was your chris what was your last uh, assignment where what city were you in and what were you doing well i was actually working on a task force uh in the bay area um and uh i was a undercover narcotics detective and i was uh i was training other undercover narcotics detectives that was my last assignment okay hold that thought because that's what i want to come back to talk about the drugs in our society Let's go to Paul. Paul, what about you? Where would you be today if you were still on the force and that you were dealing with COVID-19 on the streets? What streets would you be on and how would you feel like handling it? Well, Bruce, uh, would have been a little different for me because the, the last two thirds of my career, I was a federal agent. So it, it would have been more, more tangential. Yeah, very it, different you know, situation. Yeah, but... Um, you know, uh, we've talked we've, we've talked to some other um, uh, interviewers in recent uh, weeks about this, and uh, you know what Chris and I tried to to uh, liken it to was, uh, you know, when we were street cops, uh, HIV/AIDS had just emerged, and and I really see it the same. I mean, you know, prior to that, we didn't. As, as emergency workers, firemen, EMTs, cops, we we had you know we never heard the word bloodborne pathogen before, um, but you know there it was in the in the eighties, and all of a sudden we had to be very conscious about uh, 
you know, getting somebody's blood on you in a fight, which is, you know, uh, when you're a street cop in a in an urban city, that happens almost every night. Um, it, you know, but if you've got bit, you've got, uh, you know, some kind of a, a blood transfer, you, you held your breath for, you know, for however long it took to get a blood test back to say whether you're HIV positive or not. Um, I, I think the, the, the guys and gals that are out there dealing with this COVID thing, it, it's much the same deal. It's like, yeah, they got to suit up and go to work every day, but it's just another threat to them and their families. Interesting. Although I can't help but think that the HIV thing, even though it was scary because nobody knew anything about it and the medical world didn't know, it ha- I think it was less pervasive than this COVID. I mean, frankly, this COVID thing has shut the world down. Uh, yes or no? Agree? Disagree? It's, I mean, you've, you've made the point that the HIV was just as scary, but doesn't this seem much bigger? Uh, to, to, a line, to a line cop, no. Okay. Because at the time, the HIV was, was essentially a death sentence. The, the COVID and, and you know, thing. Uh, Chris, come on ahead. in. Oh, sorry, Chris, I was in. just going to say that, uh, yes, this is much more rampant and it's everywhere. One of the differences is that when you're a cop, uh, like Paul said, you're working the street in an urban environment, you're likely getting in, in something akin to a fight every night, sometimes more than once a night. Uh, so you were much more in line to be exposed to that than the average person. So today, you know, you could get exposed to COVID. And, and by the way, I'm not trying to paint a picture that one was more dangerous than the other. Just to us, it was a big deal at the time because we spent so much time rolling around in the gutter. Yeah, I, I get it. All right, let's get back to the drug thing that you brought up as, as you were a task force drug agent, Chris. The drug situation to most of us uh, laymen, for lack of a better word, seems out of control. Is it? Oh, yeah. It's always been out of control. But isn't it worse? Isn't it just worse? I mean, like super worse? You know what it is? I think it's different. Um, It's bad. There's no doubt about it. It always was bad. Without enforcement, it would be uh, exponentially worse. Um, but it's, it's the scale of things are different for sure. Uh, there's, you know, I, I think when people think about the drug problem, they think about dope coming across the border or whatever. I mean, we have to remember there's a, a lot of different drugs that, uh, people misuse. And, uh, I'm not sure how much the numbers have changed in the population of per capita. Um, I don't sense that they're hugely different. But again, and I, and I I sound like a broken record here, I think the visibility to it is definitely bigger. When a, a suspect or a potential uh, person that's a target for the police is high, does not does that not make your job tenfold more difficult? Paul, no, do you want to Paul, you want to tackle that one? Uh well, yeah, I mean, again, the, when you're yelling, stand the, down, stand down to a potential perpetrator who's running away from what is allegedly the scene of the crime. You don't know that this man or woman is higher than a kite and they don't stand down. What do you do? Well, you, you, you do what cops have always done. You, you, you do your job and you take them down. Um, but uh Again, this this thing has been through so many iterations over the years. Uh, when when Chris and I were street cops in the in the Bay Area, uh, the the drug that was rampant then was PCP, which is a large animal tranquilizer. I don't think you see it much on the streets now. But but when you encountered somebody that was on PCP, uh, you you essentially had to get a, a net over them to subdue them. Because you you were you and two or three guys like you were not going to do it because they were absolutely impervious to pain. 
um, I am much like Chris said, I don't, I don't know per capita now. I don't know if the numbers have greatly changed or if it's, you know, percentage, it's the same number of the population are, are, are chemically dependent, but, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, you don't work the streets without dealing with drug addicted people. That, that's just the, the way it the is. The worst part of it seems to me that the resulting effect of these kind of situations creates huge animosity, even hostility in the public against police because they assume that it's police brutality. And the media does not always report instantly that these potential suspects or perps, as, as they're referred to, were high on drugs. And that's why they were resisting arrest. If they just stood down and put their potential weapon down or obeyed the direction, they wouldn't be beaten or potentially shot. Is that, is that too conservative of a view or is it reality? Chris, you you take that one. Um, well, you know, it's a little bit of both, Bruce. Uh, it, it's, it's true what you're saying. People don't know, and the press doesn't know, frankly. And uh, if, you, if you look at a police report, there might be indicators that somebody was high, but they probably aren't going to report on that because there's, you know, you're not getting... Uh, responses back from a crime lab to tell you if that's the truth or not. I don't think there's any doubt. If you work uh, on the graveyard shifts and everybody, I, I'm going to say, and I'm just throwing out, it's anecdotal and it's, it could be way off, but I'm just going to say most of the people you make contact with after midnight till four or five in the morning, most of those people are intoxicated on booze, or dope, and when you go into any situation, you're thinking that first off. This guy's probably screwed up. You know, I think that's the saddest perspective on our culture that could possibly be said, and uh, I don't know how it's going to change, and I don't know if it can. Unfortunately, i got to take another break because this is too good. I hate to interrupt you guys, but uh, it's time for our third break. When we come back, I want your opinions on pot, marijuana legalization. What's going to happen with this? Is it making things better or worse? want to know what you think. I'm Bruce Cook. This is Angels Radio AMA 30, live Sunday night, and we will be right back. Angels Radio AMA 30. Asking for help in life takes bravery. Women addicted to alcohol and drugs know this very well. Most suffer silently while their lives fall apart, their children and their families in crisis. For more than 40 years in Southern California, New Directions for Women has helped addicted women recover in a nationally recognized treatment facility in Costa Mesa. Their doors are wide open it just takes the first step. Call New Directions for Women. The number is 888-786-0509. Again, 888-786-0509. You can also visit them at www.newdirectionsforwomen.org. New Directions for Women. They know recovery. The 99 cents only stores are honored to serve you during these times. Thank you to the brave associates who work to keep the doors open. They know you need essential supplies like groceries to cook dinner at home, cleaning products to clean your home, paper products to stock your home, even candy to take to a movie. That's playing in your living room. Whatever you need to stay at home, 99 cents only stores are here for you. Visit to the 99.com and stay updated. In response to the COVID-19 outbreak, the Pacific Surfliner continues to provide train service for those who need it most. We have strengthened our cleaning regimens to keep you and our crew safe. 
We're asking riders to travel only for essential reasons and to practice social distancing. Go to PacificSurfLiner.com for service updates, including the steps we're taking to navigate these challenging times. You can also visit PacificSurfLiner.com to virtually experience the beautiful Southern California scenery that awaits your return. Until then, please stay safe. If the woman you love, your mother, wife, daughter, sister, partner, or friend is on a downward spiral from substance abuse and doesn't know where to turn, let us help. New Directions for Women, a Costa Mesa-based addiction treatment facility, has the answer. Since 1977, we have helped over 5,000 women change their lives, returning them to sober, healthy living, restoring love, hope, and dignity to them and their families. Don't wait another day. The woman you love needs your help now. Call us at 888-786-0509 or visit us at www.newdirectionsforwomen.org. Again, 888-786-0509. New Directions for Women. We know recovery. To talk to Bruce Cook, pick up the phone and dial 714-2830-830. I'm Bruce Cook, and this is Sunday Night Live on Angels Radio. I hope you've enjoyed the hour. We've still got a, a segment to go with Chris Berg and Paul, and Paul Smith talking about behind the scenes of the police world, their book, the Night Police Beyond the Line of Duty. We don't have a lot of time left, but I got two really important issues to hit with both of you guys. The first one I brought up before the commercial break, and that's the legalization of pot in California. How has it changed things for the police? Let me start with Paul. Well, Bruce, I, I'm not not entirely sure that it's changed things for the police a great deal, but I'm, I'm going to I'm going to take a little, little higher view of this thing, kind of a societal thing. To, to me, it's baffling how we've spent decades and millions of dollars uh, on health issues like smoking and drunk driving, and, and yet there seems to be this um, kind of a turning a blind eye towards uh, marijuana, and I, I, I don't, I, I just can't square it. I can't, I, I can't square the circle as to how we, we, you know, especially where our kids are concerned about, you know, if you, if you, if you smoke tobacco, it's, it's a health thing and it can really harm you and it's avoidable. And the same thing, if you drink and you drive. It's you know you could hurt yourself or you could or you could hurt somebody else and drastically alter your life for all time. And yeah, it's kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, but you know if you you know if you smoke a little weed or 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 you know you have some marijuana edibles, that's okay. I I, I struggle with that. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I think. Not that my opinion matters, but uh, as the host, I get to do that. I say it's democracy, not at work. The majority of Californians voted for the legalization of pot. So the question I ask is, is the majority always right in a democracy, or can the majority be off track? I don't have an answer for that, but I think you sort of have already answered it. Chris, what do you say? How do you join in on this topic? Well... You know, I, I do think, by the way, that a majority can be wrong. Uh, I don't think there's any any doubt about that. Uh, I, you know, it's not the guy sitting on the couch smoking a dude with his wife watching Saturday Night Live that is an issue. Uh, from an in, in a pure enforcement standpoint, it's the upstream effect. I mean, marijuana isn't just a bunch of people, you know, growing in their backyard. Uh, this is a multi-billion-dollar business, and I'm sure if you could get the truth out of a lot of these uh, organizations that are selling it commercially now, uh, they're being impacted by organized crime. 
uh, and that's organized crime, most of it from outside of the U.S., that is feeling competition. And uh, in that world is a lot of mayhem. It's not necessarily mayhem about the dope. It's mayhem about the money the dope brings in. Exactly. I have read and heard that the cartel and the underground drug dealers are actually making more money now that it's legalized because they're selling it cheaper on the street than the legal shops. Is that correct, or is that a, a, a conspiracy theory myth? No, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, you think about a state, California, the king of taxes, right? And they are taxing it through the roof. But what they've done is essentially is they're pricing these companies they wanted to put into business out of business or making it very difficult because they do have big-time competition that doesn't need to pay the taxes. Well, think about that, ladies and gentlemen, listening to radio tonight. If you haven't thought about that before, there's a question. Okay, guys, we've got only five minutes left, and I, I really shouldn't even bring this up because it's the biggest topic of all, but I need a quick opinion from you. I'd be remiss in not bringing it up. Our prisons are filled with mostly black and brown men offenders. In comparison to the population, the numbers are out of whack. And the, the racism card is played big time in society that there is an abundance of police brutality. There's the Black Lives Matter movement, which has changed society. What can be done about this? Do you have a quick opinion on the reason why or how things could be better? Chris, could I start with you? And we only have a minute. Okay. Wouldn't I love to have the answer to this question? Anything, uh, any bit of hope that you could provide? You know, I think it's societal. I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily law enforcement or the courts that put people in prisons. It's societal. And I think we have some big, big issues in society that we have to get our hands around if it's ever going to impact what the jails look like and how they're comprised. What, what societal issue would be tantamount to that? Would it be poverty? Would uh, it be education? I, you just hit the first two I would have said, poverty and education. All we, right. We could, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's all right. got to cut you off because I want Paul to get a last word in before we close and plug your book. Paul, what do you say about the, the issue? I, I think, uh, yeah, I think you guys are on the right track. I would be willing to bet you if you could roll the clock back 100 years or better and you looked at who was in jail in New York and Chicago and the big metropolitan areas then, I bet you would have found it was a lot of Irish and a lot of Italians. I, I think it's it's those folks that are, are kind of the, the, the entry level, the, you know, the you know, the, the, the lower strata that are struggling. I mean, that's uh, interesting. A, a, interesting. Guy that, a guy that grows up in the hood. I mean, that's a way to, you know, a quick way to make money is by breaking the law. And that's going to put you at risk of going to jail. Got it. I got to cut you off there because I want to close with your final words on your book. Uh, we have a minute to go. Tell people how to get it. Tell them the title again. Where can they buy it? Chris, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, so the book is called The Night Police, Beyond the Line of Duty. Uh, you can get it at Amazon. Uh, there's a Kindle special going on right now. Uh, you can find it on our website, uh, which is www.nightpolice.com. And it's on all the social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. How about one last word? Um, well, you got it, Chris? Nope. Paul, you give it. What's your last word? What do you tell people tonight? Well, what Chris and I started out to do, and that's you, you pick this book up, you read it, and we hope it gives you an idea of just what it might be like to put on that uniform, that badge, that gun, and go out and do the job. Well, that was your plan, and that was your goal, and I think you've achieved it. Wish you good luck on the book. I understand you're writing a, your second version or your, your follow-up version. Uh, thanks for spending the hour with us tonight and sharing 
a lot of important talk and also some insight into what it's really like. I'm sure the audience has appreciated it very much. So in this time of COVID-19, you guys stay safe also. Keep your family safe. And uh, thanks so much for coming on radio tonight, Angels Radio, AM 830. I say good night, listeners. Have a safe week and come back again next Sunday at 6. It's Mother's Day, and you better join me for Mother's Day like you do every Sunday night. You've been listening to The Bruce Cook Conversation. Hear The Bruce Cook Conversation on Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific on AM830 KLAA. And hear the podcasts of every show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. <laughs>